Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome, everybody, to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand. Oh, it's so good to uh, to be back here uh, in the recording booth, uh, uh, getting back to the show. I know it's been a long time uh, since I've put an episode out. I've taken a little time off after wrapping up production on the feature film and moving into editing. And plus, like, I got to make some money because I just spent like a whole bunch of time making a feature film that like I wasn't getting paid for. So uh, I had to do all that. But I am hard at work at the next uh, Behind the Slate history series. I think I'll have it done in about a month. But for now, we have a fantastic guest. We are joined by Greg Kleinschmidt of the Seen and Heard podcast and the Arroyo Film Club. Greg, how you doing today? Aaron, it's good to talk to you. It's been it's been a while. I think it's been about a year, right? I know. I know. It's good to have you back on. Seen and Heard had just taken a, a bit of a hiatus, but I'm so glad you guys are back and putting episodes out. Such a joy. Yeah, I think we have that in common. That's why they call us the Break Boys. <laughs> they be breaking uh now greg you're here for a very important reason because about a year ago you came onto this show for a little episode that we like to call the pitch playoffs yeah that was one i remember when you pitched it to me and you were like oh yeah it's this kind of like sports coded thing and i was like what now (laughs) As a, as a non-sports person, I was very confused about the seeds and everything, but I, I quickly caught on. Yeah, so if you uh, if you listened to last year's episode or you haven't listened to last year's episode, just a quick refresher. The Pitch Playoffs is where we have a sort of central idea for a movie, and we go back through time, and we find the greatest film directors that have ever lived, and they each give their pitch around this uh, central theme. Now, last year, we had been contacted by uh, Disney and uh, Bob Iger uh, to breathe new life into the fading Marvel Cinematic Universe with a little-known superhero called the Phone Ranger. Now, Disney was kind enough to give us access to their super-secret time machine, and we gathered 16 of the greatest film directors in history to hold the first annual pitch playoffs to see who would secure the rights to directing the Phone Ranger. Greg, do you remember uh, the winner of last year's pitch playoffs? I do. It was Charlie Kaufman, who was actually my pitch. It was. It was. (laughs) Charlie Kaufman defeated Stanley Kubrick in a thrilling final round it was a tough call i remember we deliberated for a while over that one yes yes i should add that um for the conceit of this show you know it might be helpful to have a sort of 
non-biased judge who could call these battles. Uh, we have foregone all of that. And instead, we just debate between the two of us which pitch we think is better. I kind of um, like it better that way. I remember last year we were going to have a moderator and it, we didn't out of necessity. So we just did it. But I kind of like the two of us just having to convince the other person of their pick. Yeah. And also, yeah. I remember last year, like you pitched some and I was like, well, that's the clear winner. We're just going to go with that pitch. So it was like, you know. <laughs> I think the the winner always rises to the top. That's true. Yes. Yes. See, we're 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 men of ideas, Greg. Let us not be bound by petty uh grievances and attachments, right? The best idea I think will clearly win. And last year that was certainly the case. So we'll see if we can keep that going. This year, after multiple big budget flops, Bob Iger has reached out to me again and he apologized for not taking our advice from last year's pitch playoffs. He begged us to do another Marvel movie. He's been a bad, bad boy. Oh, has he ever? Has he ever? And he came crawling to me on his knees. He said, oh, please help my suffering company. But I said no. I said no, because behind the slate is always on the cutting edge of the (laughs) industry. Okay? And uh, let's be honest. Superhero movies are out. They're old. They're past prime. Instead, this year's pitch playoff will be focusing on the latest trend of Hollywood. I'm talking about brand-aligned biopics. It is a growing phenomenon with films such as Tetris, Air, House of Gucci, Dumb Money, Blackberry, Pinball, Ferrari, Ford v. Ferrari, and of course, this year's smash box office hit, Barbie. Because, Greg, there is no greater testament of the human spirit than multinational corporations. Would you agree? I would 100% agree. Well, I have great news because I have just been contacted by just such a corporation who is looking to create their own cinematic universe centered around their many popular products that we no doubt encounter every day. That company is Kellogg's. Kellogg's, of course, is the maker of cereals, Pringles, Pop-Tarts, Eggos, Cheez-Its, Nutri-Grains, Bare Naked Granola, Raisin Bran, and RX Bars. Do you have a favorite among those? I didn't know they did RX Bars. They have their hands. You know, they're like the second largest snack food producer behind PepsiCo. God. Yeah. I'd, really, I'd have to think about my favorite. Uh, do you have a favorite? Listen, I can't have Pringles in the house. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> do you like the original Pringles or do you like the I like the one sour one? cream and onion. The sour cream and onion. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're foul, but I will shove those sleeves down. There's something about Pringles, too, where it's like, a potato chip's a potato chip, but then Pringles doesn't taste like real potato chips. It just tastes like paper. It tastes like flavored paper, but the, that's the charm. <laughs> it does taste like flavored paper. I think we're I off think to I'm a great dying. start with our Kellogg sponsorship, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but this first entry into the Kellogg Cinematic Universe, they want to tell the story of their original product, the one that put them on the map. And that, of course, is cornflakes. You start your day a better way with cornflakes in the morning. You work all day a better way. You work all day a better way. You work all day a better way with Kellogg's in the morning. 
with Kellogg's in the morning. Well, tell me, are you a cornflakes man, Greg? You know, not really. I do enjoy, in, it's funny, in Italy, the two times I've been to Italy, they love cornflakes over there. But it's like this elevated corn. Like if you go to the store and you buy cornflakes here, it's like fine. For some reason, whatever brand they use in Italy, it might not be Kellogg's. But that one is like, it's just better. I don't know if it's just because of like the Italian milk, the fresh Italian milk that they serve it with or whatever. But I, so I'm, I'm indifferent. Like the American one is fine. European <laughs> one. It's a little better. Is there really a difference? I think so. Or maybe it's just like, I'm so excited to be in Italy that just food tastes better. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that's a pretty American take. I gotta be honest. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I have, I have to admit, I, I like cornflakes. I like, I like cornflakes. They're so, it's so boring. Uh, but I don't feel so guilty about it. Yeah. Um, my mother-in-law likes to keep cornflakes in her house, so I'll help myself to a bowl when I'm, you know, visiting. Nice. Now, I have to admit, I I picked cornflakes as the subject of today's pitch playoffs. I mean, of course, Kellogg's contacted me, and we went through this whole rigmarole. But in reality, I picked cornflakes because I thought it was so laughably boring of a subject. Uh but I was shocked to discover that the backstory of cornflakes is actually pretty interesting. So, so here's the story. This is the overall story. This is what all the directors will receive. This is the the information that they'll be given, and then of course they go on and take their own spin. But this is this is the history. The history of cornflakes. It starts when young Will Kellogg took a job as a bookkeeper of the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, where his radical brother, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, had been named the medical superintendent. This is in the um, the 1800s, okay? Like after the Civil War, 1875, I think. Now, the sanitarium, it was like a high-end health spa founded by Seventh-day Adventists. And this is a place where both high-end clients and the indigent poor would enjoy cutting-edge health treatments. They were given uh, an all-vegetarian diet. It was an alcohol and tobacco-free uh, uh, campus. Uh, there was, uh, they prescribed a lot of exposure to sunlight, exercise, ice baths, and saunas, and uh, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg was a big proponent of frequent enemas, water and yogurt enemas. Uh, so there was a lot of enemas going around. He was actually like kind of like cutting edge on like the whole microbiome, but his solution was shooting yogurt up your butt. So, uh, and some <laughs> of the people that had yogurt shot up their butt, some notable patients included Thomas Edison, Amelia Earnhardt, Mary Todd Lincoln. Sojourner Truth, William Howard Taft, Sarah Bernhardt, and Henry Ford. Uh, but of course, it was the diet part where our story really begins, because John Kellogg promoted a low-fat, high-fiber vegetarian diet. And he, along with his wife, Ella, and Will, who served as the bookkeeper, experimented with different ways to prepare grains. Now, there are various stories as to how this happened, but apparently one night... John had made a batch of wheat berry dough. I have no idea what that really is, but wheat berry dough, uh, <laughs> and it was interrupted, so he left it out overnight. The next morning, it was either Ella or Will who suggested that he run it through a dough roller, and the result was a very thin sheet that, when baked, turned into a delicate, crunchy flake. Now, Will or Ella or or, or, or whoever, they repeated this process and refined it, and they began serving this flaked cereal 
to patients and it became hugely popular. People would leave the sanitarium, go home, and then request deliveries of these delicate, crunchy flakes. And Will wanted to capitalize on this, but John insisted that this food was only for the benefit of the patients. And he was like really flamboyant about it. He would allow any of the patients to eat it. He would allow patients to observe the flaking process. And one of these patients was a guest. His name was C.W. Post. He took the idea and used it to start his own company, Post Cereals, which would go on to become General Foods. Can you believe it? It's crazy. Well, after all this, Will had had enough. He left the sanitarium to start his own company, the Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company, which later became the Kellogg Company. Uh, Now, this created a huge rift in the family. His brother disowned him. Uh, John then sued Will over use of the name Kellogg, a case which Will finally won in 1920. And Will Kellogg would go on to invent more cereals, such as Rice Krispies, and build what would become the second largest snack company in the world. Now, his brother John had a slightly different turn. Uh, He was eventually fired from his position at the Battle Creek Sanitarium because of a a break with the Seventh-day Adventists. And he would go on to become a staunch segregationist and eugenicist, pouring his money into the Race Betterment Foundation, which discouraged racial mixing and promoted the sterilization of the mentally defective. So, a dark turn there uh, for Mm. old John Kellogg. Uh, so uh, there's a lot happening here. There's a lot of different angles, um, uh, you know, around the invention of cornflakes. Uh, but, you know, I'm excited to fire up the old time machine um, and see how some various directors would want to tackle this story. Oh, we going back in time, baby. Luckily, Disney was having a fire sale on their time <laughs> machine. They were so strapped for cash. They, I actually got it on Orlando Craigslist. So uh, <laughs> really fortunate turn of events that I was able to, to pick up the old time machine here. So the way that this is going to work, for this pitch playoff, we are using NFL playoff seating formats. Uh, so uh, there are seven uh, teams per each side of the bracket. Uh, the four, Your four seed will go against my five seed. Your three seed will go against my six seed. Your two seed will go against my seven seed. And then our number one seeds, the real heavy hitters, get a bye week. So they won't come in until the second round. So uh, since you are the guest of this show, uh, I will give you uh, the pleasure of pitching first. Let's start with your number four seed. Who is it? And what is their pitch? <laughs> okay, my number four seed is Marguerite Duras. Okay. So you may know her as the writer. She's a writer and poet. She wrote uh, Hiroshima Mon Amour, which Alan Renee then directed. Um, and she wrote a couple, she directed a couple films, India Song and Vera Baxter, Baxter, Vera Baxter, I think that's what it's called in the oh, 70s. Oh, yeah, yeah, and 80s. yeah. Um, so Duras's uh, pitch on the film. So, her film focuses on the specific period in Will Kellogg's life when he when he was an Arabian horse breeder in the 1920s and 30s. <laughs> Kellogg offers up his ranch as a wedding venue to a prominent Hollywood power couple, and the film follows the week leading up to the event as Kellogg brings in decorators, caterers, and hundreds of support staff to make the wedding the most talked about event of the decade. In the midst of the hustle and bustle, 
Kellogg sits quietly in a drawing room and reflects on his life, particularly his relationship with his brother John and their subsequent falling out. Through a series of muted flashbacks, we see the grief of a man who can no longer right the wrongs of his life. Spectres of the past. <laughs> wow, that's great. And you, I, I love how you really dove into the biography here because Will Kellogg did go on to become quite the Arabian horse breeder. He did. <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia has served you well, my friend. Exactly. Uh, I mean... Duras, well, that's fantastic. I love, I love that. I love the muted flashbacks of telling the story and framing it all within the wedding. I can see hers. Her version is going to be the biggest commercial hit there is. Yeah, right. Yeah, a lot of viability there. Um, (laughs) Do you see that? Like, what's the sort of? I I feel like you have a or there's there's a specific color palette here. What sort of color palette would you imagine this? Yeah, it's very muted. I was very specifically thinking of India songs, something very muted and kind of uh, ethereal, and people just kind of shuffling memories, just kind of shuffling by her behind her, and voices coming from the room and things like that. I love that. I love that. India songs, though, the only movie of hers that I've seen. Let's hear yours. Excellent. Okay. Well, so my number five is Jordan Peele. <laughs> Jordan Peele, of course, uh, known for his socially focused pop horror whodunits, such as Nope, Us, and Get Out. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, Mr. Peele's pitch. <clears throat> After a lifetime of fighting for abolition and women's rights, Sojourner Truth travels to the Battle Creek Sanitarium for some well-deserved rest and relaxation. At first, everything seems normal, despite the awkward fact that she is the only black patient. Until one day, she is drugged. She awakens in a deep dungeon where the evil eugenicist John Kellogg reveals himself to be a modern-day Mangala, forcing her to an... (laughs) Oh, God, I can't believe I wrote this. Forcing her to an endless torture of yogurt enemas. (laughs) Only by befriending Dr. Kellogg's abused wife, Ella, does Truth manage to survive, convincing Ella to smuggle in a secret food that she has invented, cornflakes. Truth opens Ella's eyes to the racist patriarchy, and together they manage to defeat the evil Dr. Kellogg, pushing him into a massive vat of sugar-coated cornflakes, the very item he forbade her from selling. (laughs) Oh, man. I can see it already. That's a Jordan Peele movie. Yeah, right? (laughs) Oh man, I feel bad about giving Sojourner Truth all those yogurt enemas, but um, I'm sure they'll cast young. I think so. I think she'll be okay. <laughs> so um, quite a dichotomy of styles in this uh, this opening round. Yeah, I you know look honestly, I- I'm leaning at the Jordan Peele. I really am. Do you think? But you know, we've discussed before. Jordan Peele, he <laughs> might be the next M Night. Let's be real. And yeah, so on the trajectory of the M Night scale, what comes after Signs is Lady in the Water. No, 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 The Village, right? The Village, then Lady in the Water, then Lady in the Water. So it's going downhill. Uh, And this is my one, you know, consternation. Will it do well at the box office? Definitely. Will it be a testament to art? And will it (laughs) uphold the legacy of Sojourner Truth? Questionable. 
you know, you know, I have to say one thing. Um, I've always been since Get Out. I've not really been a Jordan Peele fan. Um, I mean, I like Key and Peele, but I have not really been a fan of his like directorial work. Um, I have seen the three, and I did see Nope on a plane. And I, actually, I didn't even really want to watch it because I was already kind of over. I was like, why do I want to see his new movie? Like, I don't like his other two. And I did rewatch, or I have not rewatched Nope yet, but I saw it like a year ago, over a year ago. And it kind of, it really did stay with me. And I've been like meaning to go back. And I know the movie has some ridiculous things in it, but it, it staying, you know, the fact that it's still in my head like a year and a half later, I feel like says something about the movie. So I don't know. I think I might kind of like Nope. Wow. That's great. Signs certainly stayed with me. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh well great yeah i'm i'm leaning peel i'm leaning peel i'm leaning peel yeah um it's and a clearer also, vision i think yeah yeah also it'd be badass to watch sojourner truth take down uh an evil eugenicist yeah especially what i mean if I, they'll probably if they'll probably cast like carrie washington or something like that but cool. if they did I, it would be awesome if they cast to Sojourner's Truth actual age at the time, which was like 75 or 80. That would be beautiful. Yeah. And I think yeah. that the ending with the vat just really sells it for me. Couldn't you see him like, <laughs> like drowning in, in sugary cornflakes? Sold. Sold. <laughs> Knowing that we're putting Jordan Peele on here, but he'll probably be dethroned pretty quickly when he goes up against anybody else. Well, he has a he has a threatening face off against your number one seed in the next round so we'll see how he does um but in the meantime let's keep this moving so greg please give us your number three seed and what is their pitch okay my number three seed is jim jarmusch the indie, indie darling boy of the 80s and 90s yeah <clears throat> so his pitch Eschewing the Kellogg storyline completely, Jarmusch's film instead focuses on a janitor at the sanitarium named Patty. Patty's day consists of waking up at 3 a.m., clearing, cleaning the latrines, assisting in meal preparation, enemas, making sure all the patient's <laughs> clothes are laundered, and handing out medication. But it's a monthly event that Patty looks forward to the most, Ice Cream Social Night. <laughs> ice cream social night is her invention and while she pitched for it to be held every thursday night the administration instead gave her the last monday of every month but what a sight it is partnering with both salt and straw and jenny's ice creams <laughs> the highlight beyond the artisanal treats is her specially made playlists for each ice cream social a mix that runs the gamut from 60s folk to 90s shoegaze on one particular night a stranger shows up who she's never seen before, claiming to be her long-lost cousin. The two become fast friends, even as Patty's suspicion grows as to the legitimacy of her claims. It doesn't matter. They have the same taste in music. <laughs> I, I, I gotta be honest, like, full confession. I, I, I don't, I'm not a Jarmish guy. I, I don't, <laughs> That's and, right. You didn't join Film Club for Jarmish Month. Oh, wait, no, we haven't had Jarmusch Month. That was something in my head that we haven't actually done yet. <laughs> well, you can go ahead and imagine me not joining. because <laughs> well, This will uh, be a hard sell for you. This is a hard sell. I'm going to be honest. My eyes were beginning to fade throughout that pitch in the same way that they do while watching a Jim Jarmusch movie. <laughs> um, you know, listen, I'm being I'm being I'm being mean, of course. Uh, no, I think like I, I, th I kind of I'll. I'll 
certainly I like some more than others, but when when it's so when it gets really plotless and really hangouty, just not my just not my not my vibe. That's fair. What's the one with uh Tom Waits where they're like they go down to like New Orleans? Oh, Down by Law. Down by Law. Yeah, that's not a fan. I, I mean, people love that movie, and I just I just don't get it. I just don't get it. It's a great movie. Well, you got to see the light, Aaron. You got to see the light. What is the light? Can you can, can you convince me here and now? <laughs> it's just that there's no. It's just all vibe. It's all characters. It's all a mood, and his characters are great. And uh, it's just a mood, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's where I struggle. That's where yeah, I struggle. That's fair. Well, anyway, uh, Jim Jarmusch is going up against my number six seed, which is. Joel Petroikis. Uh, are you a Joel Petroikis? I know the name. Remind me. So, and I'm not even sure if I'm saying his name right, to be honest with you. Um, so this is like, uh, he's a Michigan native, uh, auteur, and he was kind of, you know, some people would hail him as a sort of like new American underground filmmaker of the last 20 years. I actually didn't need a time machine for this one. I just got on a plane and and we actually I'm just kidding. We did it over Zoom. Uh <laughs> he pitched over Zoom. Uh uh no, but he's he's Detroit based. He kind of focuses on like these sort of like uh lower middle class to like lower class kind of like outsider characters who are like, you know, sort of stoner metalhead midwestern culture. Um his plot the plots are always like very strange with characters like taking digressions to like play video games and like drink soda and like kind of do you know stupid little like uh uh suburban midwest shit okay. um but uh his movie uh buzzard i think is actually i think it's i think it's amazing um he's also I, I think it's also really cool how he makes these movies he like rehearses with the actors for like a year he shoots them all on like a canon 5d um, oh cool and just very like very DIY um, uh, filmmaker. No, I don't think I've seen any of his stuff. Sounds like I oh, need to cool. check him out. Yeah, yeah, totally. He's definitely in the Jarmusch vein of American underground cinema. So it's an interesting pairing. So for Joel Petroikis's, uh pitch, um, in this modern adaptation, Will Kellogg is a stoner metalhead working at his brother's sleazy strip mall spa. Much to his brother's dismay, Will spends his days playing video games and dealing weed to the patients. <laughs> One day, Will meets a famous chef who's on a bender, and they get high together. And the chef reveals an experimental recipe for a delicious, flaky snack. High as balls, Will says, it looks like a corn flake. <laughs> the chef loves the name. The next day, Will wakes up to discover that the famous chef has committed suicide. Uh-oh. Will tries to uphold his legacy by selling the cornflakes, but his brother and his stuck-up wife, Ella, take credit for the food because it was invented in their shitty spa. Will has to summon an energy and a drive that has evaded him his entire life to fight for what is his. <laughs> Hmm. Some interesting uh, real life characters in this one. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I think your pitch is the actual film, and my pitch is has nothing to do with the movie outside of the sanitarium. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> but I mean, that is very Jarmush. That's very yeah, Jarmush. Exactly. Behavior. He wouldn't. He wouldn't make the movie of the Kellogg brothers. Do you have any casting ideas for the Jarmush pitch? Like, are we bringing back is Screaming Jay Hawkins involved? I mean, we have a time machine. Oh, so we're gonna get the we're gonna get the whole crew. I mean, you don't have to bring back the time machine for Tom Waits and John Lurie and stuff. John Lurie's gonna do the music. I imagine like Sally Hawkins would be in the movie or something. Um, <laughs> that's the vibe. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Man, you know, it, it's really interesting. I mean, Joel definitely brought more of a plot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which called me a sucker, but, uh, you know, I love a good plot. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. I don't know. I don't know. Are you, do, you, do you feel inclined one way or the other? Well, see, this one's this one's tricky for me just because I don't know Joel Petroikis. Um, yeah, it's a good pitch, but I'm such a Jarmusch fan that, like, if I was gonna, if I wanted to see one of the two of those, I would pick Jarmusch, which is unfair because I haven't seen any of the other movies. But yeah, I don't. Uh, I would lean Jarmusch, but it's so funny because this is the difference between you and me. Like, mine is literally plotless. Yours has a structure. Yours has a story. So, like. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you and I could go back and forth on this one for the whole episode. Yeah, we could. We could. For the sake of expediency, I'll 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 lean Jarmish <laughs> or I'll give it to I won't lean Jarmish. I'll give it to Jarmish. Their name recognition. I mean, if he could sell that stupid zombie movie, you know, and get people <laughs> out to theaters to see that, which I was one of them. Oh, uh, not, okay. Not, not, not casting judgment. I went and saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't um, seen I have not seen that one and I've heard nothing but bad things about it. Oh, uh, Dead Don't Die, is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just, well, you know. Um, anyway. Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry. Oh, can poor we, can, guy. Uh, can, we, can, we, can we, okay, here's a caveat. Can we bring, because Robbie Mueller shot uh, Down by Law, right? He shot a lot of the early ones. Let's say, let's say the package comes with Robbie Mueller. Done. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who we'd also need a time machine for. Dude, I told you. I got the time machine. <laughs> Orlando Craigslist. You got to get on it. They're selling everything. We're doing um, it. He's in. Okay, done. Okay, Jarmusch Muller. Let's go. Okay, well, moving on to the final first round battle on this side of the bracket. We've got your number two seed versus my number seven seed. Let's see if we have an upset in the making. What is your number two seed and what is their pitch? Okay, my number two seed. I just realized, too, we were talking off mic about this, but I wrote like 20 directors on a short list and then I picked from them. But I was like yeah. really sad to leave some off and I just now realized I left off Samuel Fuller and I was going to put him on here. Um, oh. So I just now like, re- I was like, oh, shit. Um, so it's not Samuel <laughs> Fuller. It's actually okay. the Australian auteur, Peter Weir. Weir, is, is my yeah. number two. Okay. You may know um, he's a very versatile filmmaker. Uh, big breakout with The Last Wave and Picnic at Hanging Rock. And went on to do like Witness and Mosquito Coast and The Truman Show. And just a really versatile director. He did Master and Commander. So he has a very yes. <laughs> wide range as a filmmaker. Yeah. Peter Weir's pitch. <laughs> so this is a relatively stripped down take on the story. Ooh, uh, Weir's okay. film is a quiet rumination on the seventh day Adventist angle and their influence on the sanitarium <laughs> with John Kellogg as a devoted member. He tries desperately to convert his brother, Will and bring him into the fold, 
but Will pushes back when he finds out they meet on Saturdays instead of Sundays. This interferes with his weekly poker night with the boys. A rift Uh-oh. between the two brothers grows, and after the cornflake cereal is invented, Will knows he needs to get it to a wider market and therefore starts his own company outside of the sanitarium. The brothers' relationship is never repaired, and each die alone in their beds from old age. Oh, wow. I was very specifically thinking of Mosquito Coast in this one. So if you can imagine the feel of Mosquito Coast and put it on this, that's that's the film right there. Mm. So one could, one could imagine a middle-aged Harrison Ford doing the role of Will. I also love how, like, you know, you were given the sort of, like, the story of Cornflakes, and you were like, I'm going to tell every aspect of the story around Cornflakes. <laughs> like your directors, you know, are like are really honing in on like Arabian horses and like <laughs> lots of other stuff. Very it's so true. It's true. Oh my God. It's so funny too. With Without giving too much behind the scenes stuff away, we, we initially thought it was going to be eight people instead of seven. So I did eight and I actually cut the person who had like the most straightforward telling of the story. <laughs> <laughs> oh fascinating well you know this is actually this is going to make for a, another interesting battle i feel like a lot of people who are sort of like in similar veins like keep getting paired up within this first round uh because peter weir is going to be going up against my number seven seed kelly reichardt oh my itself so, i had her on my list and i literally was writing a synopsis and i was like no that's more this person so i changed actually the Jarmush pitch from earlier originally oh. I started as a Kelly Reichardt pitch, and I was like, "This feels more Jarmush," so I changed it. But I literally oh. had her own thing. Interesting, interesting. Well, uh, let's see, let's see what she's got here. You know, of course, the um, the modern master of American slow cinema. Her tender films include Wendy and Lucy, First Cow, and most recently, Showing Up, um, which I love. All these movies, uh, they're I'm, so so oh, good. God, I am such a fucking kelly reichardt fan um okay so in this version michelle williams plays ella kellogg a brilliant health enthusiast whose ideas and innovations are constantly stolen by her arrogant husband john her only friend in the lonesome snowbound sanitarium is her brother-in-law will one night she accidentally invents a delicious new snack which quickly takes the sanitarium by storm But just as the world's rich and famous begin asking, who created such a delicate flake? Will betrays her, taking credit for her invention. She has to go to her husband, John, for help, but he ignores her, claiming anything she does is technically his. Scorned and mistreated, Ella must decide to stay quiet or fight for the credit she is due. Wow. So this is, you know, this is kind of going into like Reichardt's kind of like feminist period pieces, you know, but really trying to like live in sort of like the uncertain tension and shifting, um, uh, you know, allegiances that this, you know, this woman who's sort of like, you know, I imagine she's like really out in the middle of nowhere, you know, having to more or less survive in, within the patriarchy of this system. Um, you know, yeah, the sanitarium of, is the wilderness of Meek's cutoff and and old joy yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's I think it's right card on this one. It's, it's yes. I really wanted to get her in, and I couldn't come up with the right pitch for her. And I like your pitch, so I think I think your pitch for her is better than my Peter Weir pitch. Hell yeah, in your face, Weir. 
Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny, apparently, because she teaches film at a college. And apparently she's like, yeah. if you go and rate my professor, all these reviews yeah, are know. like, she's really mean. And like, <laughs> yeah, some guy, some review is like, she told me to stop making movies. And I was like, honestly, you probably needed to hear that. <laughs> So. Yeah, yeah, I've I've seen this. I've seen this like pop up on uh on some sort of like film, yeah, like message board or like Reddit or something. Um, but it seems like mostly what she's saying is like she's just like really hammering home on students, like, well, what is this about? What yeah. is this about? You know, I, sh- I'm just imagining this because I got stuck on it earlier. But I'd imagine she'd tell Jim Jarmusch like, you can't make a movie about a vibe, dude. Like, what is it about? <laughs> I mean, his movies are about something, but yes, I agree. Like there's a lot of insufferable film students out there. In fact, most of them, no offense, if you're listening, um, maybe you're one of the good ones. But uh, I remember when I was in film school, it was all just like, everything was focused on the technical merits and trying to pull off like really cool shots. But like the content was like abhorrent. Like it was either really nasty, like women getting like chased and hit and stuff, or it was just like, the emptiest hollowest piece of shit you've ever seen in your life so good for her cracking the whip out there on these film students it's really hard to tell a good story like it is really really hard and she is incredible at it and is someone who like god she had to pay her dues i mean it was like 12 years from leaves of uh, a river of grass to um i don't even remember which one was her second film old Old joy Joy, i think wasn't it you know i mean God, I just I, I I look at her career and just kind of marvel at um at what she does, and then watch her movies, and it's I, her her storytelling ability is incredible. I had an amazing experience watching First Cow. I love was, First Cow. Oh my God! So I I was maybe and. I think like as I get uh, older and maybe like as I become a dad, I, I have a little less patience for the slow cinema, uh, mostly just because like the demands on my time feel uh, uh, very heavy. And so I put on First Cow and um, uh, I think I was about to become a dad. And I remember watching the first hour and it was like I was really struggling with the pacing. And my wife was in the other room. She was like, oh, how's the movie going? I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, this This one might be losing me like... It gets to the end of the movie and I am like sobbing. I mean, puddle of tears, like sobbing because the, st- the simplicity and beauty of that story is just so pure and hits so hard. Um, and like, I'll never forget it. That was like a recent movie watch where it was like midway through, I wasn't so sure. And then by the end, it just like knocked it out of the park so hard, you know, that it's like indescribable. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. She does those friendship. The movie's about friendship really well and relationships and things. And it's funny. First Cow was the last movie I saw in a movie theater before COVID hit. She has a brilliant um, talk uh, real quick and then we'll move on from my card. But uh, uh, I was listening to a podcast and she brought up a brilliant idea from another uh, uh, um, uh, artist. I don't remember who it was, Um, but she was talking about I think it was in terms of feminism, but like it doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be. I think it works. Anyone can think that like this, which is that um, we're so told, especially as filmmakers, about this like hero's journey notion of like you got to go out into the wilderness and like kill something and bring it back to your village, right? Like that's the prototypical hero's journey, you know, traveling yeah. out uh, from the ordinary world into the extraordinary world you know get getting an elixir and then bringing it home right the joseph campbell uh monomyth and she was like well you don't have to tell these like conquering stories like 
I instead try to tell gathering stories yeah like, as opposed to hunt that. as opposed to hunter stories oh. and um this notion of like gathering your elements together and it's still you're you're still going through the three act structure but with this totally different perspective and um I just thought that was really brilliant that's that's amazing I love that well, I'm happy that she's advancing. Uh, <laughs> Kelly's going to stay with us for round two. But first, we have to go to the other side of the bracket and face off some more directors in the first round. So this will start off with my number four seed going against your number five seed. And my number four seed is a familiar name that you recently covered on Seen and Heard. And that would be the German master of darkness, Fritz Lang. Oh, boy. Uh, so uh, Fritz Lang, of course, redefined what epic cinema could be in the silent and talky era. Uh, of course, started off with the Dr. Mabusa trilo- trilogy, then moved on to Metropolis and M. He then fled Nazi Germany, uh, came to the U.S. where he helped um, forge the noir genre uh, through films like Woman in the Window, The Big Heat, and Scarlet Street. Uh, Greg recently took Fritz Long to task uh, on on his recent episode about Metropolis, um, which uh, I thought was a uh, I thought was uh, fun. Honestly, <laughs> did I take him to task? I don't know. Well, you certainly took Metropolis to task as uh, as it was uh, all bark no bite. I guess is really. The... <laughs> I mean, look, I'm I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Sure, sure, sure. But no, it was it was some good points. It was some good points. And then of course you brought in Pauline Kale to uh to uh to back uh, it up. Brought in the big back, guns. You brought in the big guns to defend your point that <laughs> Metropolis kind of mid. <laughs> <laughs> Hot take. Okay, so um for this one we're definitely tapping into his silent film expressionist sort of era. But I think this could take on sort of like you could have the 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 technical abilities of Metropolis, but hopefully a little more of the storytelling abilities of M, or even even some of the uh, Mabusa stuff. Okay, so here's his pitch: the evil Doctor Kellogg sits high in the tower of the Battle Creek Sanitarium, <laughs> experimenting with a new food, cornflakes, which he claims will feed the world. One day. His sheepish brother, Will, discovers a terrible secret. Dr. Kellogg is a sadistic eugenicist who plans to use his cornflakes to poison all the non-white, non-abled-bodied people on Earth. Will tries to alert the famous guests, Thomas Edison and Henry Ford, to this injustice, only to discover that they are in on the plan. Will is imprisoned by his brother in the bowels of the asylum. There, to his shock, he discovers Amelia Earnhardt is alive. (laughs) She did not die in a plane crash, but instead has also uncovered Dr. Kellogg's evil plan. Together, Will and Amelia break out and flee to a remote island with the last untainted batch of cornflakes where they survive, but with the heavy burden of guilt knowing that the rest of the world's non-white population has succumbed <laughs> to his evil plan. Oh boy. I see that pretty vividly. Yeah, you know, I mean Fritz Long uh you know big criticism uh big uh uh big critic of uh totalitarian states. Um uh you know was not a fan of Adolf Hitler. 
uh, hashtag brave. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, so I thought he could, you know, bring his criticisms of, uh, you know, uh, white supremacy, uh, to this take, uh, which would be good. But, you know, uh, also just Fritz Long caveat, you know, probably killed his first wife. So kind of a shithead as well. Right. Uh, just let's just throw that out there. I think it's hard to talk about Fritz Long without mentioning that he probably killed his first wife. Right. Right. It's yeah. like the Robert Wagner, Christopher Walken thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that. But if Robert Wagner uh, uh, shot what's her face in the in the head, Natalie Wood, Natalie or, Wood. Or it's like it's like Robert Blake, even. Who's who's Robert Blake? The guy that just died from Lost Highway. That also was like it, he probably killed his wife, but just like uh, got off. Yeah, <laughs> wife killing bad. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. I'll just put that out there. Well, I do like your take, and I do oh, see it. You. I do see it uh, very vividly, which is key. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Yes. We're painting pictures with words. Yes. Um, I'm realizing now, too, that most of my people are more like a lot of them are still living or they're recently deceased. I actually had on my the longer list. I had like Michael Curtiz and stuff, and I just like didn't put them on. So. <laughs> anyway. What's well, good? Because the honestly, the time machine is he, really running up my electric bill. So yeah, it only has so much power, right? Well, you know, I mean, we could, but like I'm kind of on a budget right now, you know. So uh, <laughs> if we could just keep the time travel to a minimum and you're going to have to pay your own airfare to go visit. <laughs> well, you would still have to use the time machine for my number five, but you wouldn't have okay. to go as far back in time. Uh, Great. My number five is Nicholas Rogue, who Ooh. is one of my faves. Yeah. I don't know where you stand on him. Oh, I love Nicholas Rogue. He's great. He's so good. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. He's he's fantastic. He and he's he's someone that I've always been aware of and I've always, you know, I think his first film, the first film I saw of his was probably The Man Who Fell to Earth because Bowie yeah. was in it and I probably saw sure. it like 20 years ago and it went over my head and yeah. so I was like always aware of his movies but the first time through a lot of them I was like, "Eh." And then getting older, I guess, <laughs> older and wiser, you go back and you're like, oh, wow, this was like a masterpiece. And I just did not see it the first time. Yeah, I, I think definitely it's like only by watching the number of films that I've watched by the time I've hit my 30s, do you start to see really what makes his movies so extraordinary and particularly yeah. what his how extraordinary his editing is. His editing is so key because it is it's, it's elliptical and it's magical and it kind of his editing really plays to like the second viewing and third viewing and fourth viewing. It doesn't yes. always play to the first because sometimes he'll jump way forwards in time, but you won't know that you're in the future. And it's like, I kind of love filmmakers. Like, I feel like Altman is the same way. And that's why like these filmmakers where their films are almost meant for the rewatches and they're not really meant for like that first viewing. But yeah, yeah I, you- I would, I would also just because I just did the like live show with this, but Kieslowski, I would throw in the same, in the same pot who I am like, uh, only at this stage of my life, like, am really starting to fall in love with. He's so good. My God. Um, so, yeah, it's Nicholas Rogue, the British director of performance, The Man Who Fell to Earth, Walkabout, um, Don't Look Now, The Witches, the Roald Dahl film, Eureka. It's a really underrated, great Nicholas Rogue film. So that's Man Who Fell to Earth. That's kind of his uh, his bio for people yeah. not in the know. Yeah. Uh, Nicholas Rogue's take... Um, so he uses the Kellogg story as a jumping off point <laughs> for his tale of greed and obsession in Depression-era Michigan. Tom York 
from Radiohead <laughs> stars as <laughs> Daniel Pollock, a vagrant cast out by society by the depths of the depression. He's lucky enough to get a few hours a week as a bookkeeper at a food manufacturing plant and once alone on one of his lunch breaks, accidentally creates the very first cornflake. After pitching the idea to the president of the company and being laughed at, he decides to manufacture the cereal on his own, bit by bit, over the ensuing years. Following a recurring premonition of life on a lonely mountain, he purchases a ranch house on the mountain in his dreams, living out the rest of his days filthy rich and totally detached from society. Forever a hermit, he can be found most nights on the roof of his house, talking to beings from the sky. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I was really just imagining Tom York's, like, fucked up eye, you know, kind of, like, examining the cornflakes <laughs> and watching them go by on a small conveyor belt, you know, as he's, like, a lot of mont a lot of cornflaking montages, but, you know, really centered around Tom York's wacky eye. <laughs> <laughs> this poor man um yeah you could do a lot with that you could do a lot with that of course rogue who's known for using rock stars in his films mick jack or david bowie yeah i'm forgetting some too at this point but yes uh donald sutherland <laughs> donald sutherland yeah well this one's tougher because i love your fritz long pitch um but also rogue is like one of my top faves let me, can I ask you this? Why did Rogue not uh, center it around the sanitarium? Why did he? Why did he? Why was it this full reimagining? <laughs> because he's all about someone coming to power and then being isolated from the world and kind of just getting lost in their own delusions. And you think I think about Eureka. For, my touchdown for this pitch was Eureka with Gene Hackman and uh, obviously the Man Who Fell to Earth were kind of my two big. Uh, reference points so i kind of just like took the story and then wove those in voila wow <laughs> you know this is gonna sound this is maybe gonna sound crazy but you know long really coasts on like an old school reputation even though of murdering just, his wife <laughs> yeah well he also did nicholas rogue murder his wife no so i think that's a point for rogue <laughs> maybe two i think too a point for rogue is that he was a cinematographer before he was a director and he shot um he was he was he was on lawrence of arabia um yeah it's like second camera or something and then he was even uh he shot the roger corman film mask of the red death which i love and it's a beautifully shot film so there's so much going for rogue in my book <laughs> i i i think that despite uh you know Fritz Long is a name that many people know. Nicholas Rogue, maybe not so much. I, I think I, go I got to go with Rogue. Let's do Rogue. I, I trust him more, honestly, and because like Long's highs are really high, but his 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 middle of the road stuff is really mid. Exactly. Honestly, that's totally it. You know, Rogue is going to do something fresh and interesting with it, and yeah. um, Fritz Long might, but he might not too. He might fumble it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Or he might just kill his wife. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. <laughs> you never know with that guy. So anyway, great. So Nicholas Rogue moves on. All right. So moving on to the next matchup, it is my number three seed versus your number six seed. Okay. And my number three seed is 
Have you heard of him? Bob Fosse. Oh, shit. <laughs> Watch out. Pulling out the big guns. Yeah. So Bob Fosse, of course, the visionary choreographer and director who revolutionized both musicals and movies. Uh, his films, Cabaret, All That Jazz, uh, uh, are just absolutely amazing. And then, of course, he threw in an Oscar-winning biopic, Lenny, uh, on top of that, which is um, maybe my fav- favorite uh, biopic ever made. Wow. So, um, Bob Fosse, this is a, a musical take on the story. We're going to go full Fosse on this one. <clears throat> Dr. John Kellogg is the esteemed director of a high-end spa. His only problem is his dilettante brother, Will, who spends his days singing, dancing, and having sex with every woman in the building. One day, noted curmudgeon Thomas Edison threatens to (laughs) shut down the spa after an unfortunate enema accident. (laughs) Can Can we go into detail of what that is? Oh, I mean, you know, Fosse, Fosse would love to show that. Uh, if he's uncensored, you know, we're going to definitely be seeing yogurt going up Edison's butt. Um, facing financial ruin, Will has a plan. He convinces his brother John to let him put on a show involving all the inmates. Taft tap dances, Ford sings, and Mary Todd does burlesque. <laughs> Just before the show goes on, Edison cuts off the electricity and the team won't be able to make popcorn for the audience. Luckily, Ella, John's wife, has made a new snack in her wood-burning oven. Cornflakes! The show goes off without a hitch and the sanitarium is saved. John loosens his strict morals and discovers song and dance to be the best (laughs) medicine. <laughs> oh boy. I love it. I love it. It's perfect. It's perfect. I knew you'd love that one. I don't know how in the two years, this is our second year doing this show, and I have never pitched Bob Fosse because he's perfect, but <laughs> he really is. He's perfect in every way. Not as a human. Let's but you know, he's not long bad. But uh but yeah, he God, didn't kill his wife. No, he didn't. He didn't. He just slowly abused her for years and years. But he, uh, God, his movies are are amazing. Yes. Um, yeah, I love everything about him. Well, I'd have to say, Aaron, that that's a very strong pitch. Thank you. <laughs> um, you said my number six? That is correct. <laughs> okay. My number six is American independent short filmmaker, Kenneth Anger, who just recently <laughs> passed away last year. <laughs> because <laughs> you gotta throw some wild cards in there you know they can't all be damn. your peter weirs damn are we i mean if we put them head to head Fosse and anger might just end up getting high and like going to some after hours club together we never see them again honestly or if they just made a movie together <laughs> some strange pornographic dance movie yes. uh, uh so if you don't know kenneth anger is uh was he just died last year but he is uh, probably he's a pioneer in so many ways um he was openly gay in 19 1930s 1940s la was making short films here i don't think he ever made a feature he worked exclusively in shorts and um is probably most known for scorpio rising another one uh inauguration of the pleasure dome um i'd say those are probably his two biggest but he has a lot and uh, we yeah. actually did a 
we did an episode on him for the for the podcast last year. We did a yeah. We did Great his magic episode. lantern cycle, which is like shit. I don't remember how many the nine, ten of his short films or something that that makes up a cycle. But so Kenneth Anger's pitch on this is told wordlessly with a barrage of psychedelic and satanic imagery. Anger's take is a meditation on capitalism in America and how the devils of the old world infect the modern age. Sanitariums erupt in flames, mascarid eyes bleed, and tight-jeaned bikers pillage, plunder, and fuck each other, all set to doo-wop hits of the early 1960s. You know, longing, loneliness. <laughs> yeah. You know, lots of shots. I imagine a lot of walking down hallways, you know? Yes. With with Christopher Doyle cinematography and uh, of course, if he makes it through the three year shoot, I don't know if I don't know if he'll <laughs> he'll make it that long. Tony Lung, uh, Maggie Chung might be available. I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, Greg, what is your number seven seed? My number seven is the Quay Brothers or the Brothers Quay. <laughs> uh, do you are you familiar with them at all? No, I'm 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 left here. Uh, jaw open who who is the quay brothers have you seen like street of crocodiles or um they're stop motion animators and no they've been working since the 70s maybe early 80s and um they're kind of disciples of jan svankmeyer oh okay i know Um, jan svankmeyer but they also kind of they actually they've done a few features um they did one with mark rylance i'm trying to remember what that movie was called but what yeah, they did a movie with Mark Rylance and Alice Kriege, and I forget what it was called. <laughs> so, um, coming to this podcast super prepared. Are they British? No, they're American, but they oh. live they live in uh, the UK. So like their accents, and they've lived over there for a long time. So their accents are this weird mix mix of American and European. Oh, a little transatlantic kind of. Uh... the The film is called Institute Benhamenta, or the Dream People call human life oh oh so this is a really old film with mark rylance i have seen this movie yeah it's from the 90s so this was a movie yeah because mark rylance i don't know if you've ever heard this he had he like had this like big dis- he, it was right after this movie or i believe he faced this big decision of he could either audition for a spielberg film or like get a call back for a spielberg film, or take the artistic directorship at uh the globe theater oh and he like he like went to the I Ching and like rolled the I Ching dice and the dice told him to go like at least he interpreted it to go to um take the job as the artistic director of Shakespeare's Globe and so he like didn't do movies for like 20 years because he was just performing at the Globe. Wow, um, I now, didn't know course, that. He's like he's like been reunited with uh with Spielberg, but I have seen this movie because I am a I'm a huge Rylance stan. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I don't love the movie. I think that their strength is in shorts. Um, yes but but it's a worthwhile watch i would say yeah 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 i would not call the movie a world beater but um uh yeah interesting okay so okay i do have a sort of reference here but i've never seen any of their animated shorts so their pitch for this okay so stop motion animator steven and timothy quay envision the life of a single cornflake all the way from the birth canal a dusty sack of flour to the grave chewed up and shit out into the sewer Along the way, the cornflake is snatched up by a flock of mechanical birds, puzzled over by a mysterious man made of saws, set loose in an enchanted forest and blown around by the wind, 
and worshipped by a band of pocket watch salesmen made of cloth. What is the dream of the cornflake if it only exists on this world for 12 hours? Ooh. <laughs> <That's> a... <laughs> I mean, it's experimental. I don't know what gave you that idea. <laughs> but I do feel it. I do. I, I like the, I like the idea of, of um, exploring, you know, the life cycles of non of inanimate objects, non-living objects. Yeah, they have this great movie called The Comb. <laughs> Man, this is such a Greg pitch, I swear to God. <laughs> so it reminds me of being in school and like doing everything I could to not do the assignment at hand. Just be like, <laughs> like I remember I was in a directing class and we were supposed to storyboard the scene. The whole class revolved around writing and staging this like writing and directing a scene that you performed live in front of the class like a play. Uh-huh. And we were supposed to turn in a storyboard with it. And I remember I had one frame on my storyboard. <laughs> and the director, the director, the teacher in front of the whole class is like, Greg, wh- why do you only have the one frame here? And I was like, because I, I who's going to say how I'm going to shoot it? I'm going to shoot it like Cassavetti's. Like, I'm just going to get the camera in there. It's just going to be the covering things. Like, I can't storyboard that. And then he was like, oh, oh, oh okay. And he like gave me an A on it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, you could do it that way. Yeah. It's yeah. true. <laughs> you you could animate the life of a cornflake. Yeah. <laughs> you could. But is it enough to beat Wong Kar Wai? Mm. And that's the question. That is, that is the question. And this one might be tricky. I mean, you have seen Institute Benhimenta, um, but it's always tricky if you don't know the filmmaker at hand. Like, I didn't know your first <laughs> filmmaker right out of the gate. I was like, who? Uh, I feel like we've had very easy face-offs so far, but I feel like I, and I love Wong Kar Wai, but I feel like I really do have to push for the Brothers Quay on this one just because, um, I don't know. Just because of your, your predilection for, uh, for stop motion animation. It's true. Yeah. I feel like you're like stop motion animation is relevant. It does have to make it to the second round. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I mean, I like. I think it's a real. Like, I do really like the pitch. I really, really do. Um, but I don't know how I feel about dumping <laughs> Wong Kar Wai in the first round. I, I, I just, I don't know how I feel about that for the brothers Quay. Uh, <laughs> That's that's a totally fair reaction. Um, I would feel conflicted also, but I think uh, the 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 Quay Brothers film too will be like twenty minutes long. <laughs> it's like basically my second short that I've pitched in lieu of a feature. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, you know, uh, you know. Do you know? Do you understand? Do you know the phrase? Did you understand the assignment? <laughs> I've never heard that before, no. <laughs> no. Oh, well, shocking. <laughs> uh. You know, I, I do think I do think there is some things going for it. Um, you know, obviously Wong Kar Wai uh does suffer from, you know, the ability to find funding, to get like full backing because his films and projects are just these sprawling, endless, you know he doesn't know when it's ending. He doesn't know where it's going. Like three quarters of everything he shoots ends up on the editing room floor. That might be, you know, look, I get that. That might be a tough sell for 
Kellogg's, uh, uh, you know, to make, they might want, you know, sort of the shorter form, uh, you know, content. Um, I think if Kellogg's is going for the TikTok generation, <laughs> it's so funny. They're going Brothers Quay. The, yeah, just, exa- so, just finish the sentence. Finish the sentence. Nothing screams TikTok like the Brothers Quay, really. <laughs> <laughs> No, what what they're trying to do? Kellogg's is trying to capture the art, the art, the the art museum crowd. So like they know this is going to play at an installation for the Brothers Quay. It's going to be the big set piece, and it's going to say right below the film that's screening like Kellogg's, like nice and bold. So oh man, Listen. and they could even hand out free samples at the museum. All right, all right, look. <laughs> I'm gonna get. I'll give it to you. I'm gonna give you Brothers Quay. Okay, I'm gonna give you Brothers Quay. But I just want. I want you to think long and hard about Wong Kar Wai <laughs> languishing in the number two seed. Okay. I can't believe that I convinced you off of Wong Kar Wai. Honestly, look, we got to keep the show moving. It's true. You know, I see you digging in your heels uh, on on the stop motion animation. That's fine. I do have I, a type. I have a type. You do. You do. I do also feel pretty confident about the Brothers Quay matchup in the next round. So we'll <laughs> let them have it. Um, But uh, okay. Brothers Quay takes it, which means that we actually had both of our seven seeds upset our number two seeds. So, wow. okay. So uh, on one side of the bracket, we still have the yet to be revealed my number one seed facing off against Jordan Peele. We then have Jim Jarmusch. Uh, facing off against Kelly Reichardt. Uh, on the other side of the bracket, we have your yet-to-be-revealed number one seed facing off against Nicholas Rogue and Bob Fosse facing off against the brothers Quay. So <laughs> I think we should start on the far side of the bracket. We'll first do the directors that we know, and then we will move on to our thrilling matchup revealing your number one seed. So all right, we start off with Jim Jarmusch versus... Kelly Reichardt. See, now this is, for me, this is a tough one because they're in the same ballpark. Like they do a similar thing and they're both indie mumblecore like icons. I, I'm going to push back on that. I don't think they do the same thing. Kelly Reichardt can actually write a story. And <laughs> this, Shots fired. This talent I think seems to elude uh, Jim Jarmusch or he just doesn't really have interest for it. Um, <laughs> no, about that. Well, I mean, but like you said it yourself, like he, he's a vibe. He's a, he's a thing, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a mood. He's a, he's a, he's an explorer. Hmm. Uh, but, but I don't think, I, I, I don't think that he's really, um, you know, a storyteller. Although I will say, <laughs> Uh, I know I was trying to think of like what is the Jarmusch movie that like I will fight for. Uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, I think, is uh, fantastic. Uh, it's a great movie, yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's maybe my favorite one of his. I'm surprised that like Down by Law didn't get you or something. It's a prison break story. Like there's, you know, but there's it's not because those <laughs> like events happen, right? But they are not sequent. They're not really sequentially tied together there's there's no necessity between them it's more just like one thing happens and then the next thing happens and then another thing happens and they just they just kind of like they just plod along 
you know, into without ever like really arriving at a central point. Whereas Kelly Reichardt, you know, does has the essential skill, I believe, of a filmmaker in that like she's actually like, <laughs> you know, telling a coherent message and like leading you, you know, through subtext to, you know, a, 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 a revelation about the human experience. You know what? I will I will give you Kelly Reichardt on this one because I do love her and you know, like I said, I'm kind of in the middle between the two of them anyway. So if let's let's do Kelly Reichardt. Okay, you sure? Yeah, sure. I don't want I'm not looking for pity here. <laughs> no, it's not pity. I don't need pity. It's Kelly sa- doesn't need your pity. It's saving up my ammo for the people that I care about the most. Not that I don't care about Jarmish because I do. <laughs> saving up the brothers Quay uh, ammo, I see. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll take it. Kelly Reichardt, the seven seed, advances to the final four. Okay, well, at the top of the bracket, we, of course, have Jordan Peele with his uh, Sojourner Truth revenge story facing off against what will be my number one seed. And my number one seed. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? Ready. Hayao Miyazaki. Oh, shit. So Miyazaki, the Japanese animation master, founder of Studio Ghibli, who has enraptured audiences young and old with his thrilling adventures such as Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, Howl's Moving Castle, and many more. Okay. All right. This one's kind of long. All right. You ready? Ready. Okay. A young Chicago orphan named Didi is given an amazing opportunity to leave her overcrowded orphanage and train to become a doctor's assistant at the Great Battle Creek Sanitarium, overseen by the genius Dr. John Kellogg. When she gets there, she finds the hours long, the job hard, and the co-workers unwelcoming. She's befriended by a shy young bookkeeper named Will. One night, She follows Will to a secret kitchen down beneath the sanitarium and watches him work, but she falls out from her hiding spot and he catches her. He's not mad, though. He shows her what he's been working on. It's a new food that he believes could save the world. Cornflakes. Though he lacks the courage to share it with the world. The next day, Dee Dee watches in horror as the venerable Dr. John Kellogg takes credit for the invention, bragging to all the elite guests that he's the one who made it. Dee Dee begs Will to tell the truth, but he responds, I can't. John is my brother. Burning with resentment, Dee Dee looks for a way to get back at Dr. John. When she's approached by a smooth-talking guest named C.W. Post, Post convinces her to steal the cornflake recipe. She sneaks into John's office and gets the recipe, but discovers piles of evil racist books. (laughs) Post takes the recipe, adds sugar, and claims that he's the inventor of cornflakes, becoming a massive success. Dee Dee confesses to Will what she's done. Will begrudgingly forgives her. Then she shows him the books. Will confesses that he's known all along about his brother, but he's been too afraid to face him. Together, Will and Dee Dee team up to take down the evil Dr. John and finally bring Will's original cornflake recipe to the world. 
A plus. Yeah, I mean, you could publish that, I think. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, you had me when you just said Miyazaki, because it's like Miyazaki against Jordan Peele, who in their right mind would say Jordan Peele? <laughs> I mean, facts. Is this a non-debate? I it's, mean, it's, a, it's straight up non-debate. Okay, great. Miyazaki, done. <laughs> I mean, some might say Brothers Quay versus Walker Y, you know, no debate. But, you know, crazy things happen in this bracket. Yes. <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, Miyazaki advances to the final four. We're moving over to the other side of the bracket where we're going to start with our, our, the, our known matchup. Bob Fosse versus the aforementioned Brothers Quay. Oh, it's Brothers Quay all the way on this one. Oh, stop it. Get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. You got look, a Bob Fosse musical? Look, 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 look. I'm just happy that the Brothers Quay made it this far. I will I will happily give this to Bob Fosse. Ah, okay. I thought I thought you were really digging in for a battle here. <laughs> no. You know, it was a wonder it was a Cinderella story. Let's call it, let's put it that way. It's true. Yeah, they got farther than anyone thought they would. So hey. Can you ask hey, for more? Brothers Quay, thanks for playing. You just got Fossied. So um, <laughs> Bob Fossey's moving on to the final four, which brings us to the big matchup. Nicholas Rogue versus your number one seed. Greg, would you please reveal your number one? Oh, boy. My number one is Jonathan Demi. <laughs> you may know him <laughs> as... Again, I think uh, I picked a lot of like versatile directors, some versatile and some very specific, like the Brothers Quay. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan Demi, you may know, uh, Stop Making Sense, which just had a resurgence last year because A24 put it out theatrically. Uh, he did something wild. He did Married to the Mob. He did a little film called Silence of the Lambs, which you may have seen. He did yes. Philadelphia. So yeah, he's a, he's a man of all seasons, as they say. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, you're really bringing out like a you know a real workman American. But but while Jonathan Demi, I feel like gets the workman image sometimes. Like he, I think he is an auteur. I mean, looking back at like Melvin and Howard, like I mean, when he does a movie, he so fully commits. And sometimes I think it's easy to overlook just how great he was. So his pitch for this film. Uh, this is in the vein of his lightly surreal screwball comedies. <laughs> a 30-something Matthew Modine stars as Will Kellogg, a lanky, bumbling bookkeeper who often has trouble with the ladies. He accepts, he, <laughs> <laughs> he accepts the job at the Battle Creek Sanitarium after his brother John, played by a 30-something Jeff Daniels, offers it to him. Together, the two brothers get in over their heads after their inadvertent invention of the cornflake, a delicacy that everyone is banging down their doors to get a taste of. Now, <laughs> instead of playing grab ass in the hallways, they're on the run from rival scientists, food corporation goons, and the mob as they take chase in the highways and alleys of Battle Creek, Michigan. Along the way, they run into C.W. Post, the inventor of grape nuts, who gives them sacks of his cereal to use as a foil to the baddies chasing them. Chaos ensues. <laughs> I very clearly 
had two films on my mind for this one. It was something wild and yeah. most specifically Married to the Mob. The, I am obsessed with Matthew Modine and Married to the Mob. I think that performance is underrated. I think it's genius. It's like Marlon Brando level acting. I love him in that movie and I love that movie. So this think Married to the Mob applied okay. to the Kellogg story. <laughs> I mean, I I I love I love the Jeff Daniels Matthew Modine like buddy kind of comedy uh, 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 trappings of this whole thing. I'm, you know, I'm also honestly, I'm really proud of you for coming up with a pitch that was actually about cornflakes. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, <laughs> props up to you uh, yeah. for that. Yeah. Good. Good. That was thrilling. That was thrilling. That was, that was, uh, that was excellent. I, um, I don't know. I, I really don't know between, uh, um, Jonathan Demi and Nicholas Rogue. What what was the Rogue pitch again? The Rogue pitch is essentially it's Tom York Depression era. Ah, yes. Inadvertently creates the cornflake. So another one that's actually about the cornflake, and then turns into your David yeah, but then Bowie he goes and lives on a mountain, or your Gene Hackman. For, yeah, from Eureka, where he lives on a mountain and talks to the sky, and he's a hermit and lives out the rest of his days there. We could say that it maybe loses the cornflake thread a bit. Yeah, the cornflake is just the catalyst to get him wealthy and isolated from everybody else. Of course. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> it's just the ticket, that's all. God. Oh man. You know, because I'm actually like I'm kinda I'm a little hit or miss on on Jonathan Demi. You know, uh, we did something wild for the film club. Yes. And um I, I hadn't seen it before. And um I was a little meh about it. That's right. Yeah. A little meh. Um, even though I think, you know, Jeff Daniels is uh, fantastic in it. Yeah. Him um, and Melanie Griffith and Ray Liotta. Ray Liotta. Oh. Ray Liotta, yeah. A, young, a very young, icy-eyed Ray Liotta. Yes. Is there any other Ray Liotta? I don't know. Well, well there's definitely old icy-eyed Ray Liotta. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I. it's, it's tough because, like... It, you tell me the stories of the two movies. I want to see the Demi one. I do. I really do. But the, but rogue has that trust Mm -hmm. where it's like, okay, I think his pitch goes a little off the rails. I'm gonna be honest. Like any rogue film. Yeah. But like any rogue film, like that is also like the essential quality of a rogue film. Yeah. Bad timing. Which I, yeah. Which I kind of want to like, you know, I'd be up for that. I'd be up for that ride. But you know, I don't know. There's something. There's something about the screw. The screwball. There's something about the screwball chase of the demi one that I really, really like. Well, this one's tough because they're both my pitches. I do. I obviously want to see both films. If I was forced to pick a filmmaker between Nicholas Rogue and Jonathan Demi, I'd probably pick Nicholas Rogue. Uh, but I really, really love Jonathan Demi's screwball comedies. So if you want to lean Demi, I can lean Demi. If you want to lean Rogue, I can lean Rogue. I feel like I'm going against like my own taste. <laughs> but I think that Demi's uh, pitch is stronger. I think so too. I, when I wrote I the pitch, the story is, I think yeah. The stronger. When I wrote the pitch for Demi, I was like, oh, this is a Jonathan Demi movie. Like, <laughs> through and through. No, I can see it. I can see it. Let's go Demi. Let's go Demi. Sorry, Nicholas Rogue. One of the great Sorry. filmmakers of all time. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he can join Wong Kar Wai. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've left Drowning some good ones in the dust. Is. 
Wow. Well, this has set up a, a, a stunning uh, final four, which on one side of the bracket puts uh, Hayao Miyazaki against Kelly Reichardt. And on the other side, Jonathan Demi versus Bob Fosse. Oh, final four, Greg. Okay. Let's start Miyazaki Reichardt. Here's the thing. Yeah, what's the thing? I think your pitch for the Kelly Reichardt one was really, really strong. But who wouldn't want to see a new Miyazaki movie? It, it's a tough, <laughs> it's a tough call. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Reichardt one is filled with it's filled with longing. It's filled with unspoken, you know, unspoken anger. But Miyazaki, you kind of like get this whole sort of like thrilling adventure you know, young orphan girl. I think you could also kind of like, he would bring in this sort of like, I don't know, like almost like steampunky kind of element to it because like, you know, the sanitarium is functioning in, you know, like proto-industrial America in the middle of nowhere. You know, I mean, you totally have like the setup to like, which is like, I feel like Miyazaki does a lot of, um, you know, he's always like, finding these bucolic settings but then of course like is really interested in how like industrialization like imposes upon that bucolic setting i thought what would be really cool is like it's you put it in the winter time so now you have like miyazaki uh, like a winter miyazaki film which i don't think exists like usually they usually are always in the summer i think you're right i think there might be some winter scenes in nausicaa but i don't think i think they're brief and i could be imagining them i don't remember (laughs) (laughs) um you know what i mean it it's so funny because this game ultimately just kind of devolves to like not devolves but it's like which filmmaker do you like more really (laughs) like that's kind of what it is it's the pitch but also it's like do i want to see a new kelly reichardt do i want to see a new miyazaki i love kelly reichardt but miyazaki is truly one of the great living masters so i might inch miyazaki on this one but i'm also open to persuasion Love you, Kelly, but um, I think we got to go Miyazaki. I mean, I feel guilty. I part of me feels guilty because, like, I you know, last year I came out with Kubrick as a number one pick, and it was like, well, this isn't fair. <laughs> yeah, bringing out the big guns. He loses in the final, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, you know, you know, look, these people were available to you too, Greg. So that's you know, true. Like, I can't, I can't apologize that much, you know, for you going were, Brothers you, Quay, <laughs> for going Jonathan Demi. Uh, he's your number one. Yeah. So. And I stand by it. (laughs) Okay. Miyazaki advances to the final round. And let's decide who he's going to face. Jonathan Demi or Bob Fosse. Okay. I have... mm, I think Bob Fosse, again, he's an all-timer for me. Like, I love Bob Fosse's films, even though he only directed five I think they're all great. Even his first film, Sweet Charity, which a lot of people just kind of brush over. I think it's a great movie. (sighs) That said, the Jonathan Demme pitch is, as you said, it's very clear. Like that film is clear and you get it immediately. And so I think what it comes down to, you know, both filmmakers have passed. If someone asked me, Greg, we just found a film from the vaults. And it's either a lost Jonathan Demi movie or it's a lost Bob Fosse movie. I would rather see the lost Bob Fosse movie. So I don't know. <laughs> but I think that the Jonathan Demi movie might honestly is probably the most like 
commercially um, viable film of these pitches. I mean, maybe in 1991. I don't know of a lot of like buddy heist mob chase movies that are like blow mid budget buddy, you know, buddy dramedies that are like blowing up the box office about two white guys on the run. I mean, I'm going to push back on that. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I don't think Jonathan Demme is necessarily like a man of this time uh, of the of the 2024 cinematic marketplace. Right. Whereas um, Bob Fosse would fit in. He would be at a 24. Like, I mean, I feel like let's 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 do let's uh, this one's tough. <laughs> it, it is tough. I just I, uh, the like the Fosse the Fosse the Fosse thing, man. I know. It's got. It's got so much. I mean, it's because here's what it is. Here's what it is. It's basically Bob Fosse's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right? right? Like, it's it sort of got this, like, cuckoo's nest, like, almost insane asylum kind of vibe where, like, you got all the wacky patients, like, you know, uh, 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 and all their crazy personalities, but they also happen to be like famous people, you know, and like the dilettante nobody has to like get them up to do their show. You know, it's ridiculous, but it's also, you know, it's cool. Um, I don't know, man. You know, I mean, really, Bob Fosse is a trump card. You pulled a straight up trump card. Let's just do Bob oh, Fosse. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> You, I can't get bl- I can't get blamed for pulling trump cards left and right. I mean, I'm just I'm just picking filmmakers here. Well, see, now I, I wonder th- I wonder if um, Nicholas Rogue had made it through and not Jonathan Demme. Nicholas Rogue going up against Bob Fosse that would have been. See, I think that would have been a much tougher debate. Yeah, because uh, Rogue just has the the artistic you know qualities. I think a little more than a than a Demme, and that's where and that's where I think the workman moniker is earned. It is excellent work, but at the end of the day, it is a really well-crafted table. Whereas Bob Fosse and Nicholas Rogue are churning out like one-of-a-kind hand-carved like armoires with like crazy goblins on it. Well, I agree. They're more ornate, but I would I would say that something wild and married to the mob are like pretty one of a kind like they kind of look like studio movies but there's this like madness to them that no one else would dare like go there (laughs) it's almost like this subtle madness um yeah but yeah Yeah. let's let's do fossey let's do fossey i mean come on it's bob fossey how do you say no how do you say no unless perhaps he's up against miyazaki which is our final matchup you know what for me this one's easy is it yeah do tell (laughs) (laughs) it's fossey because because i think your pitch for the fossey one is stronger like it's it's an it's a through and through fossey movie and it's weird it's big and it's weird and stuff and uh yeah i i would i would say fossey wow Wow, so confident after you were such a you were such a Miyazaki uh, uh, evangelist. I know, but I'm also a Fosse evangelist. That one's you know, like all that jazz and cabaret changed my life. I remember yeah. there was pre all that jazz and there's post all that jazz. So I mean, how do you feel about Lenny? 
I love Lenny. I love, I think all of his films are great. Yeah, I like Star 80 even, although that one's his weakest. But yeah, I like Sweet Charity. But obviously, yeah, the, the, the main three are Cabaret, Lenny, all that jazz, which are all yeah. just like unparalleled masterpieces. So I would say Fosse. I just think the pitch is more interesting. So Fosse gets my vote. I mean, I would love to see the Miyazaki the Miyazaki film, but I, I think I I, I I'm 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 tend to agree with you. I think the Fosse I think the Fosse pitch just there was something about it that just captured a little lightning in the bottle in a bottle. Yeah, and um, in in his its own weird way, cut to somewhat the the kooky core <laughs> of this wackadoo story. Yes, about um about the invention of cornflakes. I think it's the, it's the right touch. It's the touch that the story needs. Although I don't think he touched the racist and angle, which was, that's a, true. A, which is a fact that I could not ignore with most of these pitches. Yeah. Uh, uh, but well, I think we're in agreement. That does it. Bob Fosse is the winner of the second annual pitch playoffs. I feel good about it. <laughs> <laughs> Give it up for Bob Fosse. Wow. Incredible. Incredible stuff. A three seed coming, you know, coming out of the pack. Yeah. <laughs> you said he was a trump card. Perhaps it was insulting that I left him as a three seed. Yeah, honestly. But no, I feel good. So last year was Charlie Kaufman. This year is Bob Fosse. <laughs> Which means uh, 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 you have a pitch winner and I have a pitch winner. It's funny because they, they have more in common than you like they have more in common than you would think honestly as as artists like they're not yeah. they're not so far from each other yeah it's almost like as straight that. white men we have a type <laughs> yeah you could say <laughs> <laughs> well straight white men with artistic pretensions exactly yes yeah 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 <laughs> well there was nothing artistically pretentious about the last two hours greg uh and so having having said that um, this was fantastic. Thank you so much uh, for coming back uh, for this second annual pitch playoff. I hope we will get together a year from now and make it three years in a row. Where can people find you? Uh, where can people follow you? Uh, where can people uh, check out your work? They can follow Seen and Heard. Check out my podcast I do with Jackie. Um, it's just Seen and Heard Pod, and that's S C E N E on Instagram. You can also find me on instagram well just go there and then you'll find all oh a royal film club you can check out a royal film club which is a film club i run that aaron joins and uh it's actually where we all met so check out that and uh yeah thank you so much i'll i'll link all those down in the show notes and until next time that is a wrap